I ran across this quote this week from Fyodor Dostoevsky. Not an easy thing to say very fast. And it's an interesting quote because what it says is, the most pressing question on the problem of faith is whether a man as a civilized being can believe in the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for therein rests the whole of our faith. What we're talking about here in getting back to the vintage Jesus is the very essence, it's the very core, it's the very foundation of what we believe. So today what I want to do is I want to take a passage of Scripture and what we're going to do over the next few weeks is ask the question, what does the Bible teach us about Jesus? And I want to take a passage of Scripture that, that uh, it's kind of a different one to take to kind of begin that search. But I want to go to Revelation chapter 5 because we're going to the end of the book. Now in a few weeks, you're going to have the opportunity to ask me some questions. In a few weeks, we're going to have a series of sermons that are going to be based on questions that you ask. And inevitably, whenever... Uh, I do a series of sermons or I give you the opportunity to ask questions that you want a sermon preached about, and you'll hear more about that in the future. Inevitably, one of the books that is always brought up is the book of Revelation. Now what's interesting is that the book of Revelation is one of the most misunderstood, although it is one of the most uh, one of the books that's most attempted to be understood. It's one of the most misunderstood books in all of Scripture. And let me just tell you from the very beginning, there are some parts of the book of Revelation I do not understand. Anybody else there? Can I see your hands? This is a support group. I need to see you this morning. All right. I, there are just some parts I don't understand. I throw up my hands and I say, I'll find that out when I get to heaven. There are parts that I don't understand. But chapter 5 of the book of Revelation is one of those parts that I do. And what it tells us in there is basically a description of who Jesus is. And it can be encapsulated or put into the simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. Now what's interesting is that in one of the passages of Scripture where it tells you how to test whether or not something is from God or whether it's from the enemy, it asks, it says that one who can declare that Jesus is Lord cannot be from the enemy. This phrase, Jesus is Lord, and what is meant behind it is one of those phrases that differentiates between who we are as followers of Christ and those that aren't followers of Christ. And so in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the first or the entire chapter, we see a description of what it means that Jesus is Lord. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw... A lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." 
And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I want us to see this morning that there are three things that Jesus is Lord of from this passage. And the first is this, that Jesus is Lord of history. Jesus is Lord of history. You say, Pastor, where do you get that? That comes from the first five verses. You say, what do you mean it comes from the first five verses? All that it seems to be in the first five verses is a bunch of scrolls with a bunch of seals and nobody that can open it. Well, here's what it is. Revelation 4 and 5 is, is kind of one vision in two parts. And Revelation 4 focuses on the Creator, focuses on God the Father. And Revelation chapter 5 begins to talk about the plan that comes in. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is the one who is the Lord or the controller or the one over all of history. There are three parts of that. First of all, we see in this passage that God has a plan. Verse 1 says, I saw at the right hand of him that sat on the throne. By the way, the, the book of Revelation has been called a throne book because the, the word throne is mentioned over 40 times in the book of Revelation. It's the idea of a kingship. It's the idea of ruling. In their day and time, there was nothing higher than the throne. And he sat on the, scroll, on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now here's the picture. There's this one sitting on the throne. It is God that has got this throne with him. And he's got this, this scroll. And you know that in that day and time, scrolls are what they wrote on. And on this scroll, on the front and the back, is written. Now you have to understand, in their day and time, they only wrote on one side of a scroll. They didn't write on two sides because you wrote on one side, you rolled it up, and then when you rolled it down, you could understand where you were supposed to start. The only time you ever wrote on the back side of a scroll is when you had too much information to go on the scroll you had. Now the point of this is that on this scroll is written on both sides, which means it is complete. There's nothing that can be added to it. And so the question comes, what is the scroll? Well, there are lots of ideas out there. Some say it's the title deed to earth. Some say it's the last will and testament. Some say it's Ezekiel's book of woes. Some say it's the sealed book of Daniel 12. I personally believe that what it is referenced to is what is going to follow for the rest of the book of Revelation. And so on this scroll, what you basically have is God's plan for the rest of history. Both sides are filled. Nothing's going to be added or taken away. God knows what's going to happen. And He has written down everything that's going on. So what does the book of Revelation show us? There are three things that happen through the rest of the book of Revelation. There's retribution, there's redemption, and there's restoration. The first part of that is retribution. 
what Scripture teaches us is that God has a plan, and that plan involves retribution. Now, that's not a word that's popular in Christian circles today. That's not a word that people like to talk about, but it's just evident. In chapter 6, you have the judgment of the seals. In chapters 8 and 9, you have the judgment of the bowls. In chapters 15 and 16, you have the judgment. All throughout, there's retribution. In an article right before Easter this year in USA Today, Kathy Lynn Grossman asked the question, Is sin in our culture dead? Are preachers tired of talking about it? In a recent poll, 87% of adults believe in the existence of sin. Something that is almost always considered wrong. At the top of those lists are adultery and racism, but what's interesting is that there are certain things that were considered sin for centuries that no longer are considered sinful. For instance, only 45% of Americans believe premarital sex is a sin. Just 30% believe that gambling is a sin. In our culture today, a lot is relative, and what happens is because of that, People don't want to talk about retribution. Here's an interesting thing. Most adults say they believe in hell. But most don't think they're going there. This is an interesting thing. Barna in 2003 asked the question about whether or not people thought they were going to hell. And 0.05% thought they were. Now let me tell you, it would be a wonderful day if 99 of people in America are going to heaven. But that's not the case. And what has happened is that people have stopped talking about this idea of retribution. There's a popular, very popular, the most popular television preacher, Joel Osteen, who says that he never talks about sin. He says, I never thought about using the word sinners, but I probably don't. Most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I just want to tell them that God loves them. Well, here's the reality. God does love us, and we need to let people know that. But one of the things that has to happen in our lives is we have to understand the dire situation we are in without Christ. And what happens through the rest of the book of Revelation is there's this theme of retribution. Then God talks about redemption, that God is going to come back and He's going to save. And the last thing that's in there is He talks about restoration. That's God's plan, that there are some that will not come to accept Christ, and as a result, He is going to pour out these judgments. If you read through the book of Revelation, what it teaches is that at one point in the midst of the judgments, over half of the earth's population will be killed. Now think about that for a minute. If that were to happen today, you're talking about over 3 billion people killed. Now, God's Word, you could figuring out how all that happens is one of those things that I think is best left to somebody else and not to, to serious deciding in our mind. I don't know how that's going to happen, but God's Word teaches that a great tribulation, a great difficulty is going to come, and it's that moment that people will begin to realize their need for God. And at that point, He will redeem and restore The first thing we see that helps us to understand Jesus is the Lord of history is that God has a plan. Here's the second thing, though. Heaven had a problem. 
Verses 2 through 4 tell us that God's got this amazing plan, this unbelievable plan, this thing that has got all of history wrapped up in it, that God knows the past, the present, and the future, but that there is no one in heaven or on earth that is able to open and to bring that about. No one. It tells us in Scripture that there's a mighty angel with a loud voice proclaiming. The word there means that it is a constant going over and over and over again. Who is worthy to break the scrolls and open the seal? There's a universal search. There's, there's someone looking. It's, it's not saying that they've looked into the universe. What they're saying is that there's no one that is worthy to open the seal. Not Moses, not Joshua, not Elijah, not Elisha, not David, not Jeremiah, not Daniel, Peter, Paul. No one is able. And as a result, the Apostle John writing this says that he begins to weep openly. So here's the thing. John, in writing this, sees this unbelievable plan that God has for all of people. But we can't understand it completely, and no one is able to open until one looks at him and says, even though there is a problem with heaven, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Verse 5 says, Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, stop crying. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The lion of the tribe of the Jew, the Messiah, would come from the tribe of Judah. The, the, the phrase in the Old Testament was that he was a lion. The root of David means that it will come from the root of David, from the house of David. And so you have this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the one. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come and he has triumphed. Here's how all that wraps up. What we have in the beginning is that God has this unbelievable plan for humanity, for us, for creation that He's going to bring about. That involves retribution, that involves redemption, that involves reclaiming. But there is no one that is worthy to be able to come and to break the seal to see that that goes forward until Jesus comes in. And He is the answer. Now what does that mean for you and me? Here's the reality. If Jesus is the Lord of history, that He knows everything that is happening in your life and in mine, and He's still in perfect control. Anybody here ever feel like your life is spinning out of control? Anybody? Am I alone? Anybody? I mean, just things happen. Not necessarily bad things. Sometimes it's bad things. There's, there's issues with health. There's issues with finance. There's issues with money. Sometimes it is just that life has come at you so fast that it feels like it is just completely spinning out of control. I feel like my life has been in a whirlwind for the last month, two months. There's a lot going on in my life. There's... There's a, you know, we, I just, I was, spent two weeks at school. We had an unbelievable vacation Bible school. We spent a week at the Southern Baptist Convention. In the midst of that, major things are, are happening in our, in our family. Things are happening here at the church. Things are happening all around us. Most of you know my brother has been in, has had serious illness, still has a serious illness, a long way to go, is in rehabilitation now. And it just seems like at times that everything in my life is completely out of control. But in the midst of that, I can take heart and 
comfort in the fact that Jesus is the Lord of history. Nothing that has happened in my life has caught Him by surprise. Nothing that is going on in my life is a new idea to Him. He has known about it. He has seen it. He knows how to walk me through it. He knows what's going to happen two months from now. He knows what the end of my brother's situation is. He knew when I got to school how I would finish that. When I don't see clearly what the future holds, the one that holds tomorrow is there with me. He is the Lord of history, and because of that, I can trust Him completely today. You see, I don't know how you could live without knowing that there's one that knows the future. President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Daniel Aiken, was talking about being at the University of Texas at Arlington doing graduate work. And he had at the University of Texas at Arlington a professor. What's interesting is the University of Texas at Arlington, which is a, not a Christian school, has one of the best Greek scholars in the world. And so there are a lot of professors and, and, and seminary presidents that have been there. Dr. David Dockery from Union went to UTA, uh, and, and Dr. Aiken did as well. And Dr. Aiken said that in one class he had a professed atheist who would talk about why he was an atheist all the time. And one of his students one day said, Professor, let me just ask a question. What happens in the future for mankind? And the professor said, I'm not too optimistic. He said, humans have not treated each other well, and because I don't believe in the supernatural power, I see us moving towards utter destruction. Dr. Aiken said, the reality is that if I subscribe to his beliefs about the lack of God or one who controls the future, holds it in his hand, then I would have to agree with him in his pessimism. You see, the truth is that you cannot state the truth of Jesus being the Lord of history any better than the children's psalm that says, he's got the whole world. Where does he have it? In his hands. He's got it there. He's got every day planned out. He is the Lord of history. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. Not only is He the Lord of history, but He is also the Lord of victory. He is a conquering Lord. Verses 6 and 7 is a surprise. It's a twist. He tells them that the Lion has come and the Root of David, the Messiah. And then verse 6 says that then I saw a Lamb. A Lamb. And what's interesting is that in this passage of Scripture, we expect for a roaring lion to come. We expect for one to come that is powerful and strong. And Jesus is that. But the way He presents Himself and the way that He gains victory is by becoming a lamb. I don't know that there is any less threatening of a creature than a lamb. Have you ever been around a lamb? Seen a lamb? They're, they're, they're very non-threatening. There are some animals that are threatening. Amen? My dad was telling me last night, he's killed three snakes in their backyard. I'm not going to their house for a year, alright? I didn't tell them that till just now, but snakes are threatening. When I go to the zoo and you walk around the zoo, there are certain animals that are just threatening. There are certain animals they would not put in the petting zoo. Right? I don't imagine that a lion or a tiger in the petting zoo would be a popular attraction. But you could go in the petting zoo and there are lambs there. And just think about this. 
the image that is given in Revelation of the victory of Christ, the most powerful human that has ever lived, God Himself in the flesh, the image that is chosen is that of a lamb. Here's the reason Jesus is the Lord of victory. First of all, it's because He was slain. I don't know if you know this or not, but the word used here for lamb is a special word. It's used 29 times in Revelation, but only one time outside of Revelation, and that's in John 21:15. The word literally means a little pet lamb. Now think about this. This is a specific word for lamb that just doesn't mean a lamb. It means the gentlest kind of lamb. We have a Pomeranian dog. There are different kinds of dogs, right? There's a golden retriever dog. There's a uh, greyhound dog. There's a bulldog. There are boxers. There are pit bulls. And a pit bull is different than my Pomeranian. The particular kind of dog I have is considered to be in the toy breed. It's kind of the gentle breed. The word used for Christ as lamb here is like the toy breed of lamb. The gentle Lamb. Now what's interesting is it was used of the little pet lamb that was kept in the house before the Passover sacrifice. And in turn, it became not just a mean little pet lamb, but victorious warrior lamb. He is victorious because he was slain. The theme of the Lamb is found throughout Scripture. In Genesis 22:8, Abraham and Isaac, God has is, called Abraham to take his son and to, to take him up on the mountain and to sacrifice him. And on the way up, Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. In Exodus 12, at the Passover, it's talking about the Lamb. And it says, your Lamb shall be without blemish that is to be sacrificed. In Isaiah 53, 7, when it's talking about the servant of the Lord, it says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. In John 1, 29, when John the Baptist is announcing the coming of Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what is interesting in Scripture is the way that He takes away the sin of the world is through His blood shed on a cross. There is power, power, power. Wonder-working power in the precious blood. Of the Lamb. Now, when I was growing up in a country church where my grandparents attended, Southside Baptist Church, the music minister sometimes would stand up and say, We're going to give some extra power to that song today. And so it's saying, Power, power, power in the blood. We'd say, Power, 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 power. Now, when you're in West Tennessee in the country area, sometimes they all just kind of run together. But the point is that the power came in his death. One of the most popular movies of the summer is a movie called Prince Caspian. And it's the sequel to the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has perhaps the most beautiful modern interpretation of the death of Christ. The, the, the God figure, the Christ figure in those books is Aslan the Lion. And there's this story that happens where the white witch, the evil witch, gets Edmund, one of the children that goes to Narnia, to fall into sin. And the white witch says that when a son of man, when a son of Adam comes and gives into temptation, he is rightfully mine. And Aslan agrees. 
And as they walk a little farther, Aslan asks the white witch to go, and Aslan tells them, He is yours, but I am going to give my life in place of him. And one of the most striking scenes in modern movie history to me is as Aslan is walking into that place where he will give his life, and there are what are just ungodly looking creatures surrounding him, calling for his blood. And he gets there, and the first thing the queen says is, we must shave him to humiliate him. And they place him on this stone table, and she kills him there. What is interesting in that movie and in the book that C.S. Lewis wrote is there's this idea and understanding that in killing the lion, she defeated herself. The truth is that Scripture teaches that in Christ giving His own life, He won victory for us. He is victorious because He was slain. He is also victorious because He is standing. He is standing. Look what it says in verse 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. The idea here is that He is the one everyone is encircled. He is standing. Now, in the Scriptures, that's in the language that means that it is something that happened that has continuing effects. What is interesting is both of those words are used that way. That He has been slain, or He is slain, and He is standing. Now think about that for a minute. He is dead, but He is standing. And the idea there is that Christ won victory through His blood on the cross, but He is still standing up for us today. He is risen from the grave. He is alive and well. He is living today. And the result of Him standing in the center of the throne is that He has all authority and power. He has won the victory. Not only was He slain, and not only is He standing, but He is strong. Now this is where we get into some sevens, alright? Everybody say seven. Alright. We're going to see seven a lot. Now, the number here is not important as a number. The important here is the symbolism is completeness. It says, first of all, that as they're encircled him, he had seven horns. Now, um, one pastor said he preached on this passage and he went home and his son came up to him and said, Daddy, I've never seen a picture of Jesus with horns coming out of his head. That's not what is intended here. In the Old Testament, and the Jewish culture, horns were symbols of power. Even today, horns are symbols of power. As part of our trip to Indianapolis for the Southern Baptist Convention, we went to the largest children's museum, or one of the largest, and considered one of the best in the world. Indianapolis has one, and you walk in, and the first place you go is the dinosphere. And as you walk in, you see, first of all, this huge ancient crocodile, and then you walk where there are dinosaurs there, and they have two T-Rexes standing up, but in the middle of the T-Rexes is the horned dinosaur. And I want to tell you that that T-Rex is impressive looking. When you stand there, and the actual bones and the fossils, you see how large the T-Rex is, you realize that was a big animal. And one of the things on there says, how in the world could this stegosaurus fight off this T-Rex. How did Triceratops fight off a T-Rex? And they said the way they did it was through the spikes and the horns that they have. There's power 
in that. Some of the craziest people in the world to me are the people that do the running of the bulls in Spain. Anybody ever seen that on TV? Watch the highlights? Now what makes that dangerous? The horns, right? You're running with a group of thousands of people trying to make sure you don't get pierced by a horn. Now I can find better things to do with my life than that. But Scripture says here the symbol is he has horns. And not just some horns. He has perfect strength. Perfect power. He is omnipotent. He's also victorious because he sees. It says he has seven eyes. Now if you literally take this and draw this out, it makes for a strange looking figure. But the idea here is because he sees everything. He has seven perfect, complete eyes in their day meant knowledge. It's the idea that not only is he omnipotent, but he is omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. He is in all. He is the Lord of victory. Now here's the reality. What that means for you and me is he knows every single thing about us. He knows all our thoughts, our motives, our ideas, our dreams, our aspirations, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the ugly. He knows it all. Scripture teaches that He loves us in spite of that. Here's the last thing in verse 7. It tells us that He is sovereign. He came and He took the scroll from the right hand who sat on the throne. What that symbolizes there is that He has the same amount of power as the one who sits on the throne. That He is the one that is in control as well as everyone else. He is all-powerful. He is all-seeing. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign God. And that is who Jesus is. Someone has written a play on the phrase, Mary had a little lamb. It says, Mary had a little lamb. His soul was as white as snow. And anywhere His Father sent, the lamb was sure to go. He came to earth to die one day, the sin of man to atone. And now He reigns in heaven above. He's the lamb upon the throne. Here's what that means for you and me. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves in lives. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, We are on the winning side. We have chosen the correct partner. We are a part of the family of the victorious Lamb of God. And that means no matter what comes my way, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what difficulties I face, nothing is big enough to overcome Him. You know the thing that I've found in life, with my life and with other people's lives is that when they get stressed out about a situation, what they have often done is they've over-exaggerated the situation and underestimated their God. You ever dwelt on a situation so much that you just don't see any way out of it and the more you dwell on it, the bigger it gets? The more you think about it, the harder it becomes? The truth is, when we see God in Christ for the victorious Lamb that He is, suddenly our problems aren't as big. We're going to sing an invitation to Him in a minute about the fact that, that, that when we trust in Jesus, when we look into His face, when we fully seek Him, that everything on this earth will just gradually fade away. Here's the last thing. Not only is He the Lord of history and the Lord of victory, but He is also the Lord 
of glory. Verses 8 through 14 are beautiful hymns that come from people that are worshiping God. What's interesting is that if you take it and look at it, it moves from the smallest choir to the next biggest choir to the largest choir. And what you see in this passage is what people are doing or what is happening in this worship. And you understand how worthy Christ is for our praise and our adoration. Look what it says first of all in verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, there are a lot of interpretations of that, but I believe what most scholars believe is that that represents the saints of God. And so the first group we see praising the Lamb are the saints of God. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they're special Christians. Saints in the New Testament just means all those that have given their life to Christ. So these are all the believers that have gone on to heaven, that have died here, that are there worshiping. And each one had a harp. Now, don't take that literally to mean that when we get to heaven, everybody gets their harp assigned, all right? I mean, I know there are some people that think when we get to heaven, we're going to check in with St. Peter and they're going to fit us for a harp. That's not what it's intending for us to understand. What it means is just that we are able to sing and to play. One of the things that I know for sure is when I get to heaven, I am going to have an unbelievable voice. I don't now, but I will. The truth is, the most beautiful voice you've ever heard on this earth will be nothing compared to what it will be like to sing praises to Jesus in person. I look forward to that day. And not only is it our praise, but look what else is being poured out before Him. It's our prayers. Prayers of the saints. And so you have this institution that the saints are there and they're singing and they're praying and they're praising. They're giving all glory to God and what they do is they give praise to Him for what He has done. It is a new song. It is new in kind or quality. One of the things is when we get to heaven, if you're looking forward to sing when we all get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, we're probably not going to be singing when we all get to heaven because we're going to be singing a new song. Now, I, I don't think there will be. But in churches I've been in the past, there may be people that complain we're singing new songs when we get up there. When are we going to sing those old songs? They're not going to be PowerPoint on the screen. You're just going to know them, all right? And He's worthy for several reasons. Because He was slain. It's the word used in Revelation. Because He has redeemed us. He has bought us back. And it's not just us. With your blood, you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The things that always excite me at the Southern Baptist Convention is to see what God is doing across the nations. To see what God is doing with money that we give to the cooperative program to go across the world. And when we get to heaven, there are going to be people there from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we're going to be singing in unison and glory to God. And not only that, but He has made us kings and priests to serve. And we will reign with Him. It is a beautiful song of praise. Now, as those are the actual words we will sing... I don't know. I can tell you this, we probably won't sing them in English. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but English is not the official language of heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to do a new language. We're going to have new names. Did you know that? 
One of the things I love about Scripture is it teaches us when we get to heaven that there's a name that only Christ knows for us. Some of you may have uh, nicknames for your children that's just special between you and them. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we get to heaven and Christ has a name just for me? My name will be better than your name, but your name will still be good. And so what you have here is this this great group coming up and singing praises to God because He is worthy. But then what I love is, it's almost like you suddenly have a worship war. The angels get jealous. That's what it said. I know it doesn't say those words in Scripture, but what happens is these saints and their praise and glory is so unbelievable, the angels go, we've got to get in on that. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands of upon thousands. Literally, it's ten thousands upon ten thousands. Literally, it's myriads of myriads. The idea here is that you cannot calculate the number of angels that begin to sing. And they sing, worthy is the Lamb. Now look why He's worthy. He is worthy because He was slain for you and for me. Think about this. The angels are jealous of us because we get to sing about what He's done for us. They get to sing about what He's done for us. He was slain. Worthy is Him to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We can't give that to Him. He already has it. Now, here's one thing to understand. John is very clear in this passage of Scripture that you can look at these angels and begin to almost worship them. He said, don't worship them. Watch them. Don't honor them. Listen to them. Watch as they give a blessing. The word there is eulogia. Eulogy. Literally a good word. Now we cannot give Christ power and wealth and wisdom and strength, but the truth is from our lives and from our hearts, as the angels did, we can give Him honor and glory and praise. And so you start with us singing praise as saints or the saints of heaven singing. Then you look and it's worthy as the Lamb that is slain from the angels. But the last group is all of creation suddenly joins in in singing to Him. It's the creatures on the earth, under the earth, on the sea, all that is in them singing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever Amen. The thing is that what happens is that suddenly all of creation sings praises to the only one that is worthy. You know, if in the middle of my talk today, in the middle of this sermon, the governor of the state of Tennessee were to walk in and walk down the aisle, it would be appropriate for him, us, because of his position, to stand in honor of him. If, as has happened at the Southern Baptist Convention when I've been there before, if today through this time the President of the United States, George Bush, were to walk in, regardless of where you believed in his politics or not, it would be appropriate for us as Americans who are under his leadership to stand and to applaud him. But what happens here in Scripture shows us that if Jesus Christ, which He is in this room, but if He were to manifest Himself and to walk into this place, that standing in His honor or applauding in His honor would not be appropriate. You see, when we see in verse 14, is when all of this is happening, 
The only appropriate response for you and for me when we realize the very God that we serve is that we must fall down and worship Him. The only proper response to who He is and what He has done is to fall down and worship. The Lamb is Lord in heaven. But is He Lord of your heart? Here's our response. It is complete and utter, passionate devotion to Him. You see, the reality is when you get back to the vintage of Jesus and you understand who He is in fullness, when you understand who He is and everything He is, when you get a glimpse of who He is, suddenly the only thing you can do is to worship Him completely and to follow Him devotedly. Passionate devotion. He is the Lord of history. What that means for you and for me is that we can trust, even in the midst of times that we don't understand, that He is in control. He is the Lord of victory. That means that no matter what difficulty we may be going through, what problems are happening in our lives, that we can trust that we serve the God of victory and that in the end, He's going to work it all out for us. Romans 8.28 states that. And He is the Lord of glory which means that He is the only one worthy of our worship and our praise. I wonder this morning, if you are here and perhaps you've never come to understand Him as the Lord of your life, you've never allowed Him to be the Lord that He intends to be in your life, and this morning for the very first time, you need to come and to say, I need to accept Christ as my Savior. I need to ask Him to forgive me. I need to let Him be Lord of my life. This morning, perhaps for the first time, you need to do that. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation you can Perhaps this morning in this room there are people that have accepted Christ. You've walked the aisle. You've been baptized. You've done that stuff. But you've never let Him have full control of who you are. Of your thoughts and your decisions. Of your life. Of everything you are. And this morning you want to passionately devote your life to Him. Perhaps this morning there are some of you in this room that hearing that Jesus is the Lord of history, there are just difficulties. Life has come at you fast. It seems that it's completely out of control. And you just need this morning to come to this altar and to pray and say, God, I trust in You as the Lord of history. I trust in You that You know all that is happening. Lord, walk me through this. Guide me through it. Help me through it. Maybe 